Please pray with me. God of grace, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Justice is a theme in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, but connecting the biblical messages of justice with the political world today is not simple or easy. Epiphany is the holiday in the church calendar when we remember the visit of those magi foreigners to see the Christ child. The church has taken this to mean that God is for the whole world, not just the people of one community or tribe or nation. And founder of Methodism, John Wesley, echoes this sentiment when he says, The world is my parish. The United Methodist Church today continues to speak to what it means to claim the whole world as our parish. So in these weeks following Epiphany, we have been looking at one way the United Methodist Church speaks to the issues of our world, which is through our social principles. The social principles are the United Methodist Church's official voice on a variety of social and political issues. In previous weeks, we talked about the natural world, about various dimensions of human community, and about economics. The sections of the social principles I'm focusing on today are titled The Political Community and The World Community. The section on the political community is primarily looking at the role of government. The world community is focused on international relations. In looking at these sections of the United Methodist Social Principles, we find theological language and references to biblical traditions, which are named as the basis for particular positions the church takes. And we also find specific statements about or stances on particular issues or policies or practices. So once again, we have this uneasy mix, or what to me is an uneasy mix, of how the church chooses to speak. As I've said in previous weeks, there are places in the United Methodist Social Principles where I think we get it right, and places where I think we get it wrong. When we get it right, we are generally making theological statements that are well-grounded in Scripture and the Christian tradition. And there are also places where we make statements about issues that are too bound by time or context to be widely applicable. Here are some places where we get it right. In speaking about the role of government, our social principles state, our allegiance to God takes precedence over our allegiance to any state. And we know ourselves to be responsible to God for social and political life. These statements are well grounded in both the traditions of the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament. I can't imagine a Christian disagreeing with those statements. Our reading from 1 Samuel this morning reminds us of how the Hebrew people wrestled with a similar dilemma, wanting the government of kings, but being warned by God through Samuel that human government was destined to be flawed, that human government was no substitute for the sovereignty of God. After framing the proper perspective on government as secondary to God, the social principles have a nice phrase to capture what we do desire from government. 
While our allegiance to God takes precedence over our allegiance to any state, we acknowledge the vital function of government as a principal vehicle for ordering society. So this, according to the United Methodist Church, is the proper role of government, the ordering of society. In a spirit similar to the spirit of our allegiance to God taking precedence over our allegiance to government, the social principles later say, governments and laws should be servants of God and of human beings. The context of this statement is a section on civil disobedience and civil obedience, talking about both following the law and also about breaking unjust laws. It reminds me of Jesus talking about another kind of law, saying that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Laws are tools consistent with the role of government, the ordering of society. But laws are human constructions and can be fallible. And the church acknowledges that conscience may at times call us to a higher law. The social principles go on to talk about basic freedoms and human rights, among other things. Here's another theological statement from the social principles. The mistreatment or torture and other cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment or punishment of persons by governments for any purpose violates Christian teaching. Christ teaches us to love our neighbors and our enemies. It's a hard teaching to swallow, even harder to live out in practice, but the teaching is clear. This informs the church's statements about torture and other forms of punishment, and it also informs the church's statements about the death penalty. The section on the death penalty is one of the places where the United Methodist Church speaks most forcefully. Here's what it says. We believe the death penalty denies the power of Christ to redeem, restore, and transform all human beings. The United Methodist Church is deeply concerned about crime throughout the world and the value of any life taken by a murder or homicide. We believe all human life is sacred and created by God, and therefore, we must see all human life as significant and valuable. When governments implement the death penalty, then the life of the convicted person is devalued, and all possibility of change in that person's life ends. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that the possibility of reconciliation with Christ comes through repentance. This gift of reconciliation is offered to all individuals, without exception, and gives all life new dignity and sacredness. For this reason, we oppose the death penalty and urge its elimination from all criminal codes. Here, the church stands by its conviction that life is sacred, that God is the ultimate authority over life and death, and that Christ can redeem any human being. It also speaks theologically in referring to repentance as a theological statement on proper attitudes toward the having committed a crime. These are strong theological statements. 
in the face of some of the really horrific crimes we hear about in our world, it can be difficult to hold on to a belief or even a hope that God can redeem, restore, and transform all human beings. When I find myself unable to hold on to that hope and these Christian values, I remember that even Jesus knew a point where he had to ask God to do the forgiving that Jesus himself couldn't do. That moment on the cross when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He didn't say, I forgive you. Maybe he couldn't. We are human and we are limited. And in the face of the limited human capacity to believe in transformation, I'm glad to hear our church hold fast to that hope. The biblical call for justice is clear, but it's not always clear entirely what the Bible means by justice. Looking up the Hebrew word doesn't help. The Hebrew word for the justice that God loves, the justice that God wills for the world, is still a legal term, a term referring to legal procedure or administration of the law. That isn't particularly helpful to me, as the administration of the law is neither the same as nor nearly as encompassing as the things the Bible or the Christian faith talk about as issues of justice. The social principles statements on restorative justice are a good example of how legal procedures and administration of the law can fall short of a more faith-based understanding of justice. Here is some of what the social principles say. In the love of Christ, who came to save those who are lost and vulnerable, we urge the creation of a genuinely new system for the care and restoration of victims, offenders, criminal justice officials, and the community as a whole. Restorative justice grows out of biblical authority, which emphasizes a right relationship with God, with self, and with community. When such relationships are violated or broken through crime, opportunities are created to make things right. Through God's transforming power, restorative justice seeks to repair the damage, right the wrong, and bring healing to all involved, including the victim, the offender, the families, and the community. The church is transformed when it responds to the claims of discipleship by becoming an agent of healing and systemic change. Here again, the church holds fast to a belief and hope that God has the power to transform people and situations. Restorative justice is talked about in contrast to retributive justice. Retributive justice is understood and defined in our social principles as using punishment as the tool for accountability and holding offenders accountable to the state, which is not necessarily the same thing as holding them accountable to their victims. Restorative justice emphasizes an offender's accountability to victims and the community. Yolo County has been introducing a neighborhood court program, which I imagine some of you have read about or are familiar with, and that's an example of restorative justice. So our social principles tell us that this would be a fitting place for Christians or the church to be actively involved. 
One thing that pleases me in our United Methodist Social Principles is our position on the separation of church and state. We say, the United Methodist Church has for many years supported the separation of church and state. The paragraph goes on to talk more about what this means, and I feel like some of the language here reflects the mixed concerns and perspectives we find as our denomination brings together voices from across the political spectrum. There's language emphasizing that the state cannot promote particular religious beliefs, and language protesting the abolishment of all religious expression from public life. The paragraph asserts that separation of church and state actually helps guarantee the diversity of religious expression and the freedom to worship God according to each person's conscience. Whatever the mix of language here, our clarity about the necessary separation of church and state is very valuable in a contemporary American context where that separation can seem to be threatened by some Christian voices. As we look beyond the section on the political community to the world community, our best theological language speaks of God's world as one world and uses that as the point of departure for talking about the hope of peace. Here's some of the language we use to talk about war and peace. From the beginning, the Christian conscience has struggled with the harsh realities of violence and war, for these evils clearly frustrate God's loving purposes for humankind. We believe war is incompatible with the teachings and example of Christ. We therefore reject war as an instrument of national foreign policy. As disciples of Christ, we are called to love our enemies, to seek justice, and serve as reconcilers of conflict. The church goes on to express its support of conscientious objectors and also expresses its support for those who conscientiously choose to serve in the military. I'm glad that the church calls us all to be conscientious in our choices and glad that the church does not attempt to settle the question of what is the one right path for all people. So our social principles address many, many issues. The social principles speak theologically and politically. At times, some of the political stances don't seem to be as solidly built on a theological foundation as I believe they should be. There are some biblical Christian values that are expressed both explicitly and sometimes implicitly in our social principles. These values include that God's will is for the hungry to be fed, the homeless to be housed, the naked to be clothed, the sick to be healed, and that people are to be accountable to God and to one another for their actions and choices. Our social principles assume consistent with Christian scripture and Christian teachings, that we are called to love our enemies, seek justice, and serve as reconcilers of conflict. There are some other values that are stated or implied in our social principles which are harder to make a case for based on scripture or Christian teachings. The social principles assume the value of individual rights and freedoms— and along these lines support democracy, free speech, and separation of church and state. 
And while these are American democratic values, which I hold dear, I frankly think you'd have a hard time making a case for any of these things based on scripture or on the bulk of Christian tradition. Most of these concepts were just entirely unknown, not only to the writers of our scriptures, but to the first several centuries of Christian thinkers as well. Spending these weeks with the social principles has reinforced in my mind that our denomination has a real heart for the world and the issues our world faces today. I've been reminded that our denomination embraces biblical teachings about justice, care for the poor, and God's sovereignty. And I've also been reminded that the church is always an imperfect human institution. I've been reminded that the church's proper arena is theological reflection on the world's issues. And then when we step outside that arena, we get it wrong as often as we get it right. The Bible is only occasionally clear about how to translate God's vision into our social structures and does not give us absolute guidance. We need to continue to think for ourselves about how to apply our best understanding of God's truths to real life and to the complex issues of our day. My hope is that we will all continue to follow Jesus as best we can, to do God's work in the world with our own hearts and hands, and may God guide us in being faithful workers for God's kingdom. Amen.